I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. She has served as I would serve a rat. Have you tain of it? Just like I did, for I was dead. Cymbeline may well be Shakespeare's weirdest play. It's a great big monster with three heads and flailing arms. It's a play about gods, prophecies, battles, and betrayals. The stuff that defined a bygone age. You may revolve with tales I have told you of courts, of princes, of the tricks in war. But it also hits a nerve that defines our own. When you first heard about the idea of adapting Cymbeline to talk about climate change, what went through you? Uh, complete, what the hell is this? The uh, crazy <laughs> idea. Ideas producer Pauline Holdsworth brings us Cymbeline in the Anthropocene, a massively ambitious plan to stage ecological adaptations of Cymbeline all around the world, from Australia to Argentina. It was the only vision that we could come to, which was to talk about fires, um, because the mountain was on fire. As the world burns and floods around us, the play's directors are turning to Shakespeare to chart a course for a better future. Imogen's travel from a corrupt and poisonous court into a more genuine way of interacting with the natural world is that journey I think we're hoping that we, that we all take. Cymbeline and the Anthropocene. At first, it seems like an unlikely combination. But once you start to unravel Cymbeline's sprawling plot, you start to find surprising connections between the two. And there's a lot of plot to unravel. So I'm hoping I can get each of you to give me a one-minute summary of, of Cymbeline and all of its <laughs> many parts. Oh, goodness. Okay. Uh, yeah. So Cymbeline is a play that feels like it does every kind of genre and Shakespeare trope in one play. It's about Imogen's journey, which is impossible. Starting point. New husband is exiled. You have the runaway princess, a frowned upon marriage, a forbidden marriage. Stepmother demands, and, and father, that you marry stepbrother who is a brute. You have a evil stepmother and evil stepbrother. You have a failed courtship that turns creepy. Husband goes away, believes you to be inconstant, orders your death. You have a war with Rome and a bet and a bed trick and someone dressing up as a boy to run away and accidentally joining the Roman army. Wake up next to who you think is your dead husband's corpse. 
go through a battle or a fire and then finally come to some kind of peace or reconciliation. There are many reasons why Cymbeline, I, I think, reflects current environmental conditions and crises. One is that it's a play of emotional and experiential extremes. It's a play of resilience focused mainly in the journey of Imogen or Inogen from the court into her own banishment. She goes into Wales and she's eventually returns to the court. And that journey symbolically represents a regeneration of the anti-environmental attitudes of the court. My name is Randall Martin. I'm a professor of English at the University of New Brunswick. And I'm the project leader of Cymbeline in the Anthropocene. My name is Rebecca Salazar. I'm the author of Sulphur Tongue, a poet, an editor, and the researcher and web manager for Cymbeline in the Anthropocene. I think the chaotic nature of its genre and plot actually lends itself really well, not just to adaptation, but to adaptations about the climate crisis, particularly because it's such a huge problem that's attacking us on more fronts and larger scales than we've ever been able to comprehend. I think that sort of chaotic nature of the story kind of lends itself to how chaotic climate stories are right now. A lot of environmental art and ecological art right now is just having to break traditional forms. Cohesive genre doesn't really work to tell this story because it's happening on so many levels. Randall Martin and Rebecca Salazar partnered with seven theater companies around the world. We're focusing on three of those seven productions in Montana, United States, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and in Melbourne, Australia. Well, when I first came back to Australia in 2009, it was just before the Black Saturday fires. And I um, remember going to my office without air conditioning, and there was a week of 40 to 44 degrees Celsius temperatures. And then at the end of that week was what got subsequently labelled the Black Saturday fires. And these fires were just to the north of Melbourne. My name is Dr Rob Conkey and I teach theatre at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. And I directed this production of Cymbeline. So that was the particular Australia that we were evoking. And the poster image was Imogen sort of superimposed in a ghostly way over the top of this landscape turned orange with fire. I'm Monica Mafia. I'm a playwright and director. Her production is based in Buenos Aires, Argentina. This natural world in Cymbeline, which is Wales, we have Patagonia. <laughs> so in this version, the idea is that a group of actors goes to Patagonia for um, a kind of workshop or lab about Shakespeare in Patagonia. So my version will be called Cymbeline in Patagonia. Those actors come from different regions of Argentina so that we could tell through songs, through traditions of each region, we could talk about the ecological problems 
of each region of Argentina. That consciousness will be talked about when they rehearse Cymbelin in Patagonia. <laughs> it's all metatheatrical. Montana is a really large and complicated state. And one of the things that I love about Shakespeare in the Parks is it reaches all these kinds of different communities. My name is Gretchen Minton. I'm a professor in the English department at Montana State University in Bozeman. And I'm the dramaturg for Montana Shakespeare in the Parks and for our Cymbeline production. Montana Shakespeare in the Parks celebrated its 50th anniversary in 2022. And instead of performing in just one park, they go to dozens. A full, full tour this season to 61 communities across five different states, states that are privileged to have a Montana as a neighbor to send out a company like this. The tiniest town that they go to has a population of 17 people. It's called Bernie. There's a state park right next to it, and there's a high place called Poker Jim Butte. And the local residents of this tiny town and the surrounding ranching communities all come up to this butte to watch Shakespeare. One is a tiny little community called Fishtail. In a little city park, there's a general store, there's a cowboy bar across the street. Feels very, very Montana. You get the college towns of Bozeman and Missoula, and Shakespeare in the Parks does perform right nearby the Northern Cheyenne Reservation and the Crow Reservation, and also up uh, where the Salish Kootenai people are. Another place I saw it was in um, Townsend, which is a railroad town. Got in the car afterwards and started driving back, thinking about the natural world and the park and, and everybody enjoying the play, and turned the corner and went right by the train, which was carrying coal across Montana. And there we were back to mineral extraction and those extractive industries driving the economy of Montana and creating a lot of the political and economic divide. When the play begins, the court of King Cymbeline is deeply divided. Cymbeline's daughter Imogen has married the man she loves, Posthumus, even though he's penniless. She's one of the few women in Shakespeare who has married of her own accord before the play even begins, who is not starting as the sort of like young virgin figure, but as a adult woman who makes her own decisions and then has to cope with the circumstances however she can to survive. And surviving will be tough. King Cymbeline is furious and banishes Posthumus. As they part ways, Imogen gives Posthumus a ring. But keep it till you woo another wife when Imogen is dead. How? Oh. oh, another? And Posthumus gives her a bracelet. Uh, for my sake, wear this. It is a manacle of love. I'll place it upon this fairest prisoner. And then King Cymbeline comes crashing into the scene. Alack, oh, the king. Thou basest thing. Avoid heads from my sight. If after this command thou fraught the court with thy unworthiness, thou diest. Away. Thou art poison to my blood. But there's actually another kind of poison creeping into the court, symbolized by Imogen's stepmother, the Wicked Queen. Who's performing a lot of what sounds like very cruel animal testing while she just experiments with poisons for nefarious purposes. Just her entire outlook seems to be that more than human beings, botanical animal 
etc., are just there to serve her political purposes, their resources to be used and disposed of as she sees fit. We thought of the court as a place that was really kind of outlandishly over the top. So uh, Denise Massman's costume designs are very bright, like really bright, garish kind of color palette. But with these Jacobean ruffs that almost look like they're strangling people and a sense that things are unnatural and being choked off. Anything that would be natural or soft or curved has been beaten out by the queen and and Clotten. There's also a symbolic poison that creeps in through the queen and through her son Clotten. And that's a kind of toxic nativism, which we're now very familiar with nowadays. That makes it seem very, very modern. And into the seemingly modern mix, the Roman ambassador Lucius arrives at court to collect a tribute that's now overdue. Thine uncle and his succession granted Rome a tribute, yearly 3,000 pounds, which by thee lately is left untender. Well, and to kill the marbles shall be so ever. The queen convinces Cymbeline to refuse paying the tribute. You must know. Till the injurious Romans did extort this tribute from us, we were free. That's another really weird part of the play. You know, why is it that not wanting to pay a tribute to the Roman Empire is a bad thing, right? Because on the surface, it looks like what the Queen and Clotten says is a good idea. But that kind of short-sighted isolationism is really destructive. And this decision to stop sending tribute to Rome doesn't seem to be an anti-colonial kind of gesture. I, as I understand it, it's it's actually often read today as an analogy for Brexit. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yes, uh, ab- absolutely. When this play was performed a few years ago by the Royal Shakespeare Company, it was called the Brexit play. Britain is a world by itself, and we will nothing pay for wearing our own noses. The more kind of global parallel that I told the actors is think of it about it as, you know, what it was like when we withdrew from the Paris Climate Accord. It's like, we're not doing this. We don't have to reduce our emissions. We don't have to be part of what those Europeans think is a good idea. And what we all realize, of course, is what we do locally or in any nation is, of course, going to impact the rest of the globe. In our version, the ambassador from ancient Rome, Caius Lucius, is a park ranger who's coming to the court to solicit the king for funding. No more tribute, pray you now. I am sorry, Cymbeline, that I am to pronounce myself thine enemy. Receive it from me then, fire and confusion. Pronounce I against thee. So the tribute, it, it, it has a sort of contemporary parallel as a lack of investment in forestry management and fire management. As the queen's poisonous words turned Cymbeline against the outside world, Imogen's husband, Posthumus, has by now been exiled to Italy and is beginning to succumb to yet another kind of poison. I durst attempt it against any lady in the world. Gentlemen. (laughs) Giacomo, an Italian courtier, claims he can seduce any woman on earth. Posthumus asks him, any woman? What lady would you choose to assail? Yours. 
whom in constancy you think stands so safe. Giacomo keeps goading Postumus and gets him to agree to a bet. If he can seduce Imogen, Postumus has to give Giacomo the beloved ring he got from Imogen. There's the running metaphor of Imogen's ring that she gives to Postumus that is then kind of passed around between various men as the bet develops. It's very much built into that kind of ownership model of marriage, where each marriage is meant to be a sort of political and material exchange, where the woman is just a symbol of that, or part of what is being given from one man to another, another object in the trunk, basically. But when Giacomo gets to Britain, he realizes that he can't seduce Imogen. So in one of the play's creepiest scenes, he sneaks into Imogen's bedchamber while she's sleeping. He eyes her naked body. Oh, 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 oh. On her left breast, a mole sinks spotted like the crimson drops at the bottom of a cowslip. This secret will force him think I have picked the lock and taken the treasure of her honor. And then he slips her bracelet off. Come on. Come on. As slippery as the Gordian knot was hard. This mine, and this will witness outwardly as strongly as the conscience does within to the maddening of her lord. And he does this for a bet. He violates her because he might win some money out of it. And the cruelty in all of those things is just that... She's definitely not seen as a person. She isn't seen as something that something or someone that can give consent, which to me is interesting partly because that is how the rest of the environment is treated. It's just something to be kind of grabbed up by different parties at different times. So can we see Imogen then as, I don't know if metaphor is the right word, but kind of as as very linked to the land itself in this play? Definitely. And there's some risk there. There is a lot of risk, certainly, in saying that women are just metaphors for the land because it really just like turns us into another object to represent another thing. But I think there's some power in that when you read a little bit deeper than just saying like, oh, the uh, place where the battle happens is described kind of like a womb and that is parallel to women. If you dig a little past that and you examine what powers are at play and what they're trying to do with the land and with women and what those ideologies have in common. That's when you can start to be critical of why those things are paralleled so often in Shakespeare, in poetry, in contemporary writing. Rebecca Salazar is also a poet whose work explores both gender-based violence and the exploitation of the natural world. H how do you understand the entanglement between the physical environment and human bodies? They're basically one and the same. Like bodies don't exist outside of an environment. If you look at just what composes a human body, there are so many cells that aren't even ours. Ours in quotation marks. Um, we have all this gut flora. We have bacteria that live on our skin and are symbiotic to us. And we not actually live very long without any of them. We drink and eat in matter from the outer world. Like it soaks into us in so many ways and we soak back out both through our actions and biologically. It's something that has landed us in climate crisis, that idea that we are separate from and therefore able to use this other, but that isn't necessarily how we have to live. Like I, I'm thinking particularly of New Zealand where a river was granted personhood 
and rights because it is an entity that is living and vital. This is now a bit of a movement to grant natural habitats the equivalent of human rights. In the early modern period, the, the idea of personhood was much more expansive. It was really for 17th century and 18th century Enlightenment ideas of personhood being absolutely a single human subject. But in Shakespeare's time, the whole idea of personhood was more flexible and fluid. The idea of personhood is also more flexible in the worldview of the Tuelche, an indigenous community in Argentina. Monica Mafia named her company after one of the community's gods, Setebos. Setebos, who had also uh, a bad side, a bad, it was a mixed version experience. <laughs> he was not perfect, but also he's the, the father of people who were the ancestral people of Patagonia, who were Tewelches. And in their tradition, animals are people. We know about that God, not usually through our, our connection with, with our myths, but through Shakespeare, because Setebus was the God to whom Caliban prays in the Tempest. None of those who were my group of actors know even the name of Setebus. They immediately got philosophical about it. They, they turned down their voices and their souls began to speak. <laughs> so I thought that's, that's uh, an opportunity for me as a director and uh, as a playwright to get people to know about these folk tales that were traditional before Shakespeare. In her production, the actors journey to Patagonia at the southern tip of South America to learn more about Setebos and about other ways of relating to the natural world. Those actors go to Patagonia, work on Shakespeare, and to see the impact it makes on you, those landscapes, the mountains, and uh, etc., that movement of the soul through being in situ, through being there. The, the idea of discovering, of making this journey, the spiritual journey through Shakespeare, ends up being a spiritual journey on themselves, on the actors, on discovering this cosmology through our own ancestral myths. In the original play, Imogen also goes on a spiritual journey. What happens is, Giacomo brings Imogen's bracelet to Posthumus as proof of her supposed infidelity. Posthumus then orders that she be killed. Imogen then disguises herself as a boy and flees to the Welsh countryside. And on that journey, she discovers an entirely new way of relating to nature. She grows into a sense, I think, of identifying the land, of recognizing the interdependencies between her and the land and environments, because she's now dependent on them for her physical survival. I have tired myself, and for two nights together, I've made the ground my bed. 
She's hungry. She's thirsty. She needs shelter. She goes back to that sort of basic, those basic conditions of human and animal existence. That's a rediscovery which represents the kind of, I think, in the 21st century, the kind of knowledge and recognition that we have got to rediscover, not in any romantic, touchy-feely way, but in a real sense of connecting ourselves back with the planet, which is our only home. In Wales, Imogen meets a group of cave dwellers who embody that sense of connecting back to the planet. In another twist, it turns out they're actually her long-lost brothers, who were kidnapped from King Cymbeline's court and raised in the wild by a man named Bularius. They've adopted their way of living to be responsible for the place they are living in and in communion with it as elements of it, not as owners and masters and possessors. Shakespeare gives us a lot of good language for that. Lots of talk about the birds, about beetles, about about trees, about their cave, about stooping down and not being too arrogant. Oh, a goodly day not to keep health with such whose roofs as low as ours. Hail yeah. thou, fair nature. We house in the rock, yet use thee not so hardly as prouder livers do. In the Montana production, the mountain man Bellarius becomes a mountain woman, Bellaria. One of the things when I talked to Chelsea, who plays Bellaria, you know, about who she would be as Mother Nature and how we could avoid that seeming cliched. And I said, you know, don't look like out there lifting your arms up and thinking about nature in that way. Bellaria in the language talks about the sharded beetle. To our comfort, shall we find the sharded beetle in a safer hold than I said, look down in the grass and on the ground. But just as Imogen is discovering a new way of being in the world, the corruption of the court catches up to her. She's still heartbroken by Posthumus's betrayal. I am sick still. Heart sick. And she has a vial of medicine she believes will help mend her aching heart. Sonia. I'll now taste of thy drug. But the drug is actually a poison made by the queen. Imogen lifts the vial to her lips and drinks. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear Ideas on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is about an international project called Cymbeline in the Anthropocene. 
Seven theater companies around the world are staging ecologically-minded adaptations of one of Shakespeare's strangest plays. The play is about Imogen, the daughter of King Cymbeline, as she escapes from the poisonous world of the court and discovers a new, vibrant relationship with nature in the Welsh wilderness. But even there, the poison of the court catches up with her. Sonia, I'll now taste of thy drug. Producer Pauline Holdsworth brings us this documentary. When Imogen's horrified family finds what appears to be her corpse, they lay her to rest in a grave. And it's here where things get really strange. But stay with me. Imogen is soon joined in the grave by the headless corpse of her evil stepbrother, Clotten, who had been decapitated by one of Imogen's cave-dwelling brothers. Our headless corpse. If, if I was going to express its lifelikeness in a, in a score out of 10, <laughs> I'd have to say four and a half. So he was a bit floppy. And Clotten, in yet another plot twist, had disguised himself as Posthumus so he could rape Imogen. Imogen's brothers cover her with flowers and then, mourning her apparent death, began to sing. Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages, thou thy worldly cast Home art gone, and tan thy wages, golden lads and girls almost, as chimney sweepers come to after they walk away, a disoriented Imogen begins to stir. The dream's here still. Even when I wake, it is without me as within me, not imagined, felt. Imogen goes on this journey out into the wilderness in, and into this profound grief where she wakes up from near death to find a corpse next to her. What, what resonances do you see between her character's evolution and what we're all living through today? You know, there's a book that I read fairly recently by Leslie Head called Hope and Grief in the Anthropocene. And it's all about owning the fact that we're all grieving for a world that we got to experience that our children and grandchildren will not. And this sense that we have done damage that cannot be repaired. Climate depression especially is interesting because it's it's basically a physical sickness that is starting to happen, a physical and mental sickness of realizing that the world doesn't want you alive, in a sense. It's a kind of depression that extends beyond the scale of how we know how to talk about depression so far. And I think that kind of, not just grief, but the trauma involved in that, is really interesting in Imogen's case because she does wake up with the shock of this body and everything about the world she was escaping toward. The idea of her husband, who she thought was faithful and trustworthy, but has meanwhile been scheming to kill her because of a bet that he got fooled by. She wakes up next to this corpse thinking it's him. From the trauma of realizing she's in a grave, having been thought dead, 
having realized she doesn't exist in the world anymore the way she did. Her entire outlook on what a future might be is damaged by that. But there has to be something on the other side of tragedy. Or at least I certainly hope so. Shakespeare wrote in his career, the the rough trajectory is from comedies and histories into some very serious tragedies and then into tragicomedies. And those late plays, No Pericles, The Winter's Tale, The Tempest, and Cymbeline, all draw upon this notion of something happening after tragedy. And what happens to Imogen in Wales is she dies. Right? She dies from that potion and she wakes up again. She could very well have succumbed to that depression and just stayed in this grave with this body and just let her world end around this this trauma but she continues and it's not clear why but there are so many possibilities for why that might be that are really resonant with why keep going when the planet is dying at least in a circumstance that keeps us alive with it how do you keep on living when you know it's that ill and that you did it realizing that kind of complicity and that hopelessness is traumatic and like finding reasons to survive through that depression, through that grief, through that shock of it all, I think is one of the play's most powerful moments because it allows us to explore that question, which isn't an easy one. Like there are no easy answers. And in a sense, it could just be, wait and see what happens. (laughs) Like it could be that Imogen is just so distraught at that moment that she just sees someone going by and was like, I guess I'll try this life. He's alive, young one. Inform us of thy fortunes, for they crave to be demanded. Who is this thou makes thy bloody pillow? And just when there doesn't seem to be any plot left to twist, along comes another. Remember Lucius, the Roman ambassador who asked King Cymbeline for tribute? As Imogen's lying there in her grave, he just happens to walk by. Who is this thou makes thy bloody pillow? Who is what art thou? I am nothing. Or if not nothing to be, we're better. He's on his way to fight a battle against Britain. And in Rob Conkey's Australian production, he's off to fight a bushfire. That scene was the beginning of the bushfire. When she woke up, she spoke a bit and then she coughed and there were some sirens in the background. <coughs> it, then it just sort of escalated from that moment. The sirens got louder, the the sounds of the fire started to increase. With help from Lucius, Imogen, who's still disguised as a boy, gets out of the grave. The regeneration in this play is not centered just on a heroic individual, but it's a collective spirit and it's a collective effort to turn things around. 
when we had our bushfire scene, it began with individuals attempting to beat the fire back and to deal with it in variously discreet ways and, and, and fairly inadequate resources. And then it was only as they came together and, and worked in chains and collectives that they were able to sort of make a dent in it. When the war or the fire is over, the characters gather to offer apologies and make amends, and to ask each other, what just happened? The final scene of Cymbeline is, I think, the craziest scene that Shakespeare ever wrote. There's just revelation after revelation after revelation. Depending on how people count it, they say there's over 20 revelations in one scene. Sometimes when I teach it, I say, oh, it's a Scooby-Doo ending where everybody's there sharing in it and filling in pieces of the story. First, King Cymbeline learns that his queen is dead. How did she? With horror, madly dying, like her life, which, being cruel to the world, concluded most cruel to herself. Then he learns that the queen hated him all along. First, she confessed she never loved you. She was also secretly plotting to kill Imogen. Your daughter, whom she bore in hand to love with such integrity, she did confess was as a scorpion to her sight, whose life, but that her flight prevented it, she had taken off by poison. Oh, most delicate fiend! Then Giacomo, the sleazy Italian courtier who'd tricked Posthumus into believing Imogen was unfaithful, reappears. He confesses everything and begs for forgiveness. Aye, wretch! made scruple of his praise and wagered with him this ring. Away to Britain, post I in this design, and to be brief, I returned with similar proof enough to make the noble Leonatus mad. Methinks I see him now. <laughs> so thou dost, Italian fiend. Posthumus steps forward. At this point, he believes Imogen is dead. So he offers his life to King Cymbeline and insists that he's the real villain. I am Posthumus that killed thy daughter. A villain like I lied that caused a lesser villain than myself, a sacrilegious thief, to do it. Every villain be called posthumously and not just oh, Imogen, my queen, my lord. The ending of the play is often read as a hopeful vision of our capacity to repent and try to fix the mess we've made. So there is a real examination of conscience and behaviour. Even though some damage can't be undone. In our production... They were all marked by the fire. Posthumus was badly burned. Iacomo suffered from smoke inhalation. And it seemed as if Imogen wasn't going to be the same. It was going to take some time for her to recover from what had happened to it. People do die. The Queen dies, of course, off stage, And then Clotten dies. And we're supposed to somehow be okay with the fact that those two characters died and everybody else gets to be forgiven. And I guess the short reason is they never ask for forgiveness. They never realize what they've done wrong or repent in any sense. So that's why they are cut off, quite literally, from the reconciliation at the end. Other people who have done wrong things in the play, really bad things, like Yakimo and Posthumus and Cymbeline, they all realize that they've done bad things and they repent, they ask for forgiveness, and they, they offer up, in one way or another, offer up their lives and say, you know, take my life, I'm sorry, I have done something heinous. What do you think the play has to say to us about our capacity to 
fix the mess that we've made? I think the important lesson is, first of all, to recognize that we have all screwed up. We all share in the destruction of the environment every single day, but we can do better. And I think we all know that we can do better. So really embracing what we have done wrong, acknowledging it, and asking for forgiveness, not from a higher power, so much as from the power of the globe that unites us all, is the first step in us forgiving one another. Like we have to be willing to forgive politicians who do terrible stuff. Like holding grudges and engaging in perpetual gridlock is not going to save any of us. But in the play, as in life, forgiveness is complicated. The reconciliation in the play is definitely ambiguous. Like it's not clear that beyond the big state powers, anyone has actually apologized in earnest. Imogen's dialogue disappears quite early on in that scene too, into those grand apologies and reunions. And I think what we can read, given the kind of emptiness of a lot of those gestures and the emptiness of certain public gestures in Canada, is that reconciliation isn't a, a spectacle. Every villain be called posthumously an artist. Oh, Imogen! There's a lot of debate, especially about Imogen and Posthumous, and sometimes there's like a slap staged into that scene as well that complicates how that's read. While Posthumous is repenting, he cries out for Imogen. Oh, Imogen! My queen, my wife, my wife! Then Imogen, who's still disguised as a boy, can't contain herself and steps forward. Peace, my lord, here. But Posthumus doesn't recognize her. And what's worse, he slaps her. To me, that is the dramaturgical emblem of the fact that things are by no means over, things are by no means healed. And that slap epitomizes the whole strain of misogyny that runs through this play, and which I think one might say is Shakespeare's trope for environmental attitudes, insofar as Inogen represents nature and the land and the mistreatment of both women and environments. That slap is an acknowledgement that deep down, it's emotional attitudes and loyalties that have not been changed. Like, it can't just be the one speech or one prophecy or one bit of funding thrown at a project that then has all its records destroyed, for instance, like the TRC had. It is a constant action. It's not one action so much as a change, a change in priorities, a change in respect. And it also has to do with repairing relations. At the very end of the play, we get another model for repairing relations. In Rob Conkey's production in Melbourne, this scene takes place in a hospital. Iacomo sort of, he, he hauled himself off this stretcher and away from the ventilator that he was sort of surviving on. And he made his apology to Posthumus. And Posthumus's response is, kneel not to me. Kneel not to me. The power that I have on you is to spare you. The malice towards you to forgive you. Live. Well, I think the signature line for a hopeful view of forgiveness 
and fixing the mess that we've made is live and deal with others better. Live and deal with others better. I hadn't thought about that line, but I think that is really the key. It's that indication that if anything is to be repaired, the circumstances that created the harm have to change. You can't continue treating people the same way and expect to be forgiven. And I think that does tie back to to that finding a new way to live. I wonder how Argentina's history shapes how people approach this question of reconciliation, forgiveness, amends in the play. It's uh, a very painful moment here in Argentina. So we really need to find that answer. When you, you asked me about forgiveness in the play, and, and I said I was skeptical, as I was skeptical with Prosperos in, in The Tempest. But we need, desperately need that. Because uh, something is, is broken, and it will take a few generations to, to reconstruct. It's not something that could be done from one day to the other. But we, we want to do that, we need to do that, uh, and I hope <laughs> it happens. And is, is it when you say something is broken, is that because of the pandemic or because of the history of dictatorship? Where, where is that coming from, the, the breaking? So different views or different views on, on education, on politics, etc., that have been corroding our souls. So... People you love, families and friends, suddenly they are all apart and we need those loved ones back in our lives, in our lives, and our loves as well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We need to do that. But we say with our foot right planted in in, in soil, with peace in la tierra, when you are not having a, an, an innocent view of life, but we are quite realistic. So being realistic, trying to recover the capacity of belief in others. In Montana, Gretchen Minton was also grappling with a political divide. What is the range of political perspectives that people would be coming to, particularly an adaptation that's dealing with climate change with? Yeah, really, really good question. Uh, I'm not sure I can imagine a broader range, because if you think in terms of the people who are in the university communities, you're going to get very, very liberal people who are very supportive of any type of environmental protection. We also have people who are very involved in extractive industries. And so you have people who are very invested in the coal mining Uh, industry. We do currently have a conservative Republican governor who is, among other things, a climate change denier. But one of our senators is a Democrat who's a lot more liberal and supportive of the EPA and environmental restrictions and all of that. What we really agreed upon is that everybody in Montana loves the natural world, you know, however they think about that, whether it's living on the ranch or fishing, or skiing, or hunting, or going out into the backcountry on a backpacking trip. And that shared appreciation for the natural world and for Montana as 
big sky country, or as the other slogan goes, the last best place, right? The importance of place and of places that are not urban and they're not polluted in the same way that a lot of places are. One thing that's really important and instructive in Montana is the farmers and the ranchers here know very, very well that weather patterns are changing and they're not just changing for an anomalous year. They're changing in broader ways that measure out seasons and years and decades. And I think that more and more people who work in agriculture very well understand that the climate is changing and are starting to be worried about the implication of that for their animals and their crops and their well-being. And I think that by bringing art that's not propaganda into these communities, that it might offer people a way to think about and talking about these issues um, in a matter that doesn't seem po so political and so divisive. You know, in, in thinking about land and natural spaces as kind of a common ground in Montana, to what extent is Shakespeare a common ground in Montana? Yeah, well, I... I uh... I love your question. Uh, so I wrote a book called Shakespeare in Montana about what has Shakespeare meant to Montana since the 1820s when the mountain men first traveled out here with Shakespeare in their saddlebags and read him around the fire at night. What was Shakespeare then or in the mining camps? And what does he continue to be now with Shakespeare in the parks? And I think what Shakespeare has always offered the people of Montana is a really large and endlessly creative and possible way for them to relate to one another, to societies, to the natural world, and to, in fact, deep intellectual problems. When I talked about Montana as a large state, as the last best place, as big sky country, one thing that's always struck me is that Shakespeare is an author very much like that endlessly expansive and diverse and adaptable. And I love that kind of way that Shakespeare offers a common ground precisely because he echoes that same expandability and adaptability that the state of Montana itself has. Let me ask you finally, what do you think Cymbeline's most important lesson for us is as we make our way through the Anthropocene? I think for me, it's how stories, the stories that we're used to telling fail and that we can let them. The play has so much to say about power and patriarchy and war and imperialism and how those different kinds of power naturalize themselves by telling that story that they are the only way. And I think this play shows the flaws. It shows where those stories fail to make this world livable. And I think that is something that we really need to keep considering, not just how are the old stories failing us, but are there other stories we need to tell? <laughs> and if they happen to be chaotic and multi-genre and involve decapitations of a weird symbolic kind and hallucinating gods or dreaming about gods, <laughs> then so be it. I think it comes back to a sense of cautious 
optimism and hunger for hope. Cymbeline offers a balanced outlook on the current Anthropocene extremes of, on the one hand, catastrophe, which tends to be paralyzing and produce inertia and a sense of hopelessness. And then on the other, on a kind of utopian environmentalism that often comes out, especially a kind of techno-environmentalism. And we have to find a way through those opposing extremes. And Cymbeline being a play of extremes helps us navigate ourselves, I think, both imaginatively and emotionally through that precarious condition. I want to go back to Imogen. Imogen is what it's all about. I think if if there is a message, Imogen is this symbol of perseverance in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds. And that seems like a pretty decent uh, definition of the Anthropocene to me. In the play, Imogen is a piece of tender air. And now in another bad fire season, I think a lot about what it means to breathe clean air. We need to understand that the air is tender, it's vital, but it's also really, really fragile. And when you breathe a lot of smoky air choked in the wildfires of Western North America now, you realize just how serious the challenges are that are facing us. What would Imogen do is the key question for going forward. What would Imogen do? You were listening to Cymbeline in the Anthropocene. This episode was produced by Pauline Holdsworth. You heard excerpts from Rob Conkey's production of Cymbeline in Melbourne, Australia, Monica Mafia's production in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and Gretchen Minton's in Montana, USA. For more information about their productions and the overall project, go to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. The senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. It makes me think about that film Shine with Jeffrey Rush playing David Helfgott, the pianist, and he's and he's learning the Rachmaninoff Rack Three, and John Gielgud in one of his last performances is saying things like, you know, you have to be mad enough to take on the mountain, and and the young pianist sort of says in reply, am I mad enough? And thankfully, I think we were mad enough to take on the, the mountain. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.